I am not a social media person by any stretch of the imagination. I have a hard enough time keeping up with my own life in the real world, let alone the social media world. And I find, I found that by and large, uh, the, the interaction and the discourse that you find on social media is, is generally unhelpful. Twitter, for example, um, provides a, a limited number of characters, and it, it's extremely difficult to carry on any kind of meaningful conversation with a limited number of characters. It just is. And you've known it, you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. But there is on rare occasions those times where something that is very profound is put very succinctly. It, it's summarized very concisely and, and even in 280 characters. And one tweet I, I saw summarized this, this book that we call Job, which is, is kind of confusing and it doesn't often make a lot of sense when we read it, but here's what the tweet said, and, and I wish I could, I thought about displaying it up there, but, but I didn't, but you can visualize this in your mind. So here's the tweet. Job in a nutshell. Job, why? Friends, you have sinned. Job, no I didn't. God, look at all the cool animals. That, that really is, in a nutshell, the book of Job. And, and we read about those cool animals in chapter 38. So I want you to open back up there with me to chapter 38 of the book of Job. After 37 chapters of arguing and complaining and back and forth between Job and his friends, God finally breaks forth out of the whirlwind. And he speaks directly to Job, two times in fact. And then that's followed by two responses from Job. And in a sense... Job finally gets what he was longing to get. And that is a hearing from God. This is what he longed for. He, he wanted God to speak to him. He wanted God to answer him in his suffering and pain. And he finally got it in chapter 38. I think it's a little more than he bargained for, as you will see. Now, as we reflect on this chapter, on these chapters, they're just, they're they mind-blowing, they're earth-shattering when we really reflect on them. And, and there's so much wisdom that we can gain from these chapters. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to simply look at three wisdom lessons that we learn from these chapters from God's speaking. Remember, the book of Job is wisdom literature. And so we're learning wisdom for our suffering. And so here's the first lesson that we learn, and I'm going to put it like this. 
with these words, and you can, you can maybe write your own sort of summary of what I'm saying. I couldn't quite nail down what I wanted to say here, but, but here's this first lesson that Job learns in his suffering, and that is this. Suffering, when you and I suffer, what suffering does is it draws us into ourselves. Suffering draws you into yourself, but... And and this is a continuation of the lesson, but there is much that you and I don't know and much that can't be explained. Let me repeat that if you are a writer and you're feverishly trying to write that down. Suffering draws you into yourself, but there is much you don't know and much that can't be explained. You see, Job thinks that he knows how the world should be run. And this is how he thinks it should be run. Be good, and you will be blessed. Be bad, and you will be cursed. That's the formula. That's the principle. That's what Job clings to. It's the theology that Job believes. But Job's world, Job's world, his world, his existence doesn't turn out that way. Life was not what he expected. He was good, but he wasn't blessed. And Job doesn't understand why. This is what we read for chapter upon chapter upon chapter. Why? I have no idea why I'm suffering like I am. Have you ever been there? Yes, you have. Yes, I have. You have been there and I have been there when life doesn't turn out the way we expected it to. Life doesn't turn out the way we want it to because of an illness, because of an accident, because of death. And that is part of the problem with suffering. You see, it's not only physical suffering that we experience. Yes, physical suffering is bad in and of itself, But often when you suffer, it's the fact that that things just don't add up. Life isn't fair, that justice hasn't been served. It's not turning out the way you had planned. What happens when a six-year-old child is raped? What happens when a loved one is diagnosed with a mental illness? What happens when you unexpectedly get laid off from a job that you love? Suffering. 
suffering which none of us want and none of us welcome, it changes our lives. Sometimes the suffering is small and has little impact. Sometimes it's big. It's big. It's big like a a life-altering disease, like terminal cancer, cancer or mental illness. But suffering is never what we want. No one buys the suffering tickets. No one signs up and goes to the suffering concert. With all that said, what suffering does, and I think this is what Job realizes, This is what Job gets. What suffering does is it draws you into yourself. It pulls you into yourself. Suffering pulls you into your world. It's what it does. And so what happens is you feel sorry for yourself. And then you complain And then you mope, and then you grumble, and you whine, and you want others to feel sorry for yourself, and you get in this vicious cycle, and your whole notion of reality can become so massively distorted in your pain, in your suffering. It's what happens. It's what happens because you get, you get wrapped up into your world and, and, you, and you start to not be able to see clearly, see objective reality. But let me make clear that, that suffering is not in and of itself the problem. We, we can't avoid it. It's unavoidable in our broken world. As, as Job has made clear throughout this book, Right? It's, it's, not, it's not that Job was suffering and that his suffering was a direct result of his sin. The, this, this book of Job makes clear that Job was an innocent sufferer. And yet the problem was, with Job, what we see as we go along in the book, the problem was is that his suffering distorted his reality. It distorted his view and understanding of God. One author explains this well. He says, quote, Job is not confessing a sin that was a cause of his suffering. Rather, he is confessing a sin that resulted from his suffering. That's what he's doing in chapter 40. In chapter 42, when he finally comes to his senses. And this is where God's first speech to Job is so, so helpful. Because God's speech, what it does, what all of it does about all of the creation and all of these cool animals, what all of that is doing is drawing Job out of himself. You see, Job went inward in his suffering and God drew him outward. And how does God do this? I've already said it. He draws Job out of himself by blowing his mind away with the bigness and the power and the extravagance of the creation. 
Let's look closely here at two examples God gives. God gives Job these two examples. First, the first one I want to look at is God exerts, he claims that he exerts, he has absolute control over everything, even the heavenly consolations. So look with me at chapter 38, Job 38, verse 31. Job 38, verse 31. And I want you to notice the words here. Look carefully and notice the words of power and the words of control. Chapter 38, verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? I mean, I can barely even pronounce that word, (laughs) let alone God is binding it. Or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix the rule, their rule over all? Now, as I was studying here, I'm, I'm, I'm studying and I'm looking up what commentators are saying about these words, and they actually, frankly, don't really know what it means to bind and loose and guide these heavenly objects. But what they know, what they know is that God is doing it. That's what they know. He's ruling, he's controlling, not Job. Job isn't doing that. God is taking Job outside of himself. God is saying, you know what he's saying to Job? He's saying, Job, Job, I got this. Got this. I'm in control even in your suffering. But it's not the inanimate creation God is controlling. You know, the inanimate creation, it's, it's, the, it's the animal creation. It's, it's the, the creation with life. So I love this next description. Turn over with me to chapter 39, verses 13 through 18. I love the description of the ostriches. Look with me at this. Chapter 39, verse 13. The ostriches, they flap their wings joyously with the pinion and the plumage of love. For she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust. And she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. When she lifts herself on high, that is when she gets ready to run, when she gets ready to go, a bird that cannot fly, she laughs at the horse and his rider. This is a quick bird. Now, this description, if you really look at it and understand it, I'm going to try to help you to understand it. It is, it is hilarious. It says that God has made ostriches stupid. That's what it says. He's made them stupid. I mean, look what they do. They lay their eggs and then they abandon them. They forget that a foot may come along and crush them. Indeed, 
It says in verse 16, she treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. I mean, unless you're pure evil, who abandons their offspring to the side of the road? Right? No one does that except the ostrich. Right? And yet, and yet in all of that, it is God, it says, who has made her stupid. It is God that has made her to have no wisdom. You get the point? You get the point that God was communicating to Job? God is in complete control of all of it, from the stars in the heavens to the dumb ostriches on earth. He rules over all. He rules over all. So in essence, God tells Job, in his suffering in this first speech, What he tells him is this, Job, I have made no mistakes. I haven't made any mistakes, Job. I know exactly what I'm doing. My plan and my counsel is perfect. Job, Job, trust me. Trust me. And Job Job is humbled. That's his response. Look how he puts it in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. Look at it with me. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. Job admits that there is much more happening in God's world than he knows. I have declared that which I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I do not know, he says in chapter 42. Job didn't know the half of it. And so what does he do? He puts his mouth, his hand over his mouth in silence. Job does this. That's Job's response. Friends, this is how God works. God must break you before he can make you. Or let me put it like this. God must devastate you before he can deliver you. That's the gospel. He humbles us. And oftentimes, he uses suffering to do it. You see, there is so much that you and I don't understand in our suffering. Suffering humbles us. Why? So that we can eventually see outside of ourselves and see how things really are. Pride, pride is the result of turning inward. Humility is the result of turning outward. But that's not all Job learned. He didn't just see The fact that suffering caused him to turn inward and so God had to blow his mind away through all the creation and all the animals. 
But Job learned a second lesson, and it's a lesson for us, and it's this. God is good even in your suffering. God is good even in your suffering. I mean, if we could, if we could grasp that truth, what good, no pun intended, that would do for us. What good that would do for us. You see, oftentimes in our suffering, we have those moments where we do look outward, we do seek answers, we are crying out to God, and we know, I think, there's not anyone here this morning that would say, God is not all-powerful. That's clear. We know that God has to be all-powerful. But I think what we doubt many a times is that God is good. We do. I mean, how can a good God allow this to happen to me? That is what we think. That's right where Job was. That's right where Job was. I mean, think about it. Just think about it with me for a minute. How is it good that God allowed all Job's children to be killed? For Job to go bankrupt and for Job to writhe in pain from the pus that oozed from his skin. That is hell on earth. I, I, I think I, no one wants to go through what Job went through. And all for what? All to teach Job a lesson? All to prove Satan wrong? I mean, certainly there must have been an easier way. You see, Job, what he did is he questioned God's justice very clearly. And that means he was questioning God's goodness. You see, when you question God's justice, you are also questioning his goodness. Why? For justice to be just, it must be good. It must be. It has to be. Justice and goodness go together. In fact, here's a deeper principle that I want you to get. To question one of God's attributes is to question all of God's attributes. All of who God is hangs together. You can't question one thing about him, like his love, like his goodness, and not also be questioning things like his justice and his power. You question one thing, you're questioning everything. And that's what Job did. Job questioned. Job accused. In fact, look how God describes how Job accused him. In chapter 40, verse 6. Look at it with me. Chapter 40, verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. And here's his accusation. Here's what God is saying that Job accused him of. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Job was condemning God. He was questioning God. But God's response to Job in these two speeches is so gracious. It's so loving. And it demonstrates that God is good. Even though Job is suffering so horribly, so awfully, in so much pain, 
I mean, this is what God is saying to Job. Job, I am good to all of my creation. Chapters 38 through 41, you know what these chapters are? They are literally dripping with God's goodness. They're dripping with God's goodness. I mean, look what God does in chapter 38. Turn back with me to chapter 38, verse 25. Look what God does to the desert land. Chapter 38, verse 25. Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert without a man in it, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seed of the grass to sprout? I mean, we take rain for granted. But when you live in the desert, rain is a precious demonstration of the goodness of God. God even feeds the lions and the ravens. Check out the end of chapter 38, verse 39. The end of chapter 38, verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair, who prepares for the ravens its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food. In essence, in essence, here's, here's the logic God is using with Job. Here's the logic. Premise one, God has a good reason for all things to come to pass. God has a good reason for all things to come to pass. Premise two, suffering came to pass in Job's life. Therefore, conclusion, there is a good reason suffering came to pass for Job. That's what Job is, or that's what God is trying to communicate to Job. But Job doesn't see it, at least initially. He doesn't see it. Why? Because, as I've stated, Job is wrapped up in himself. He's wrapped up in himself until God comes to him in the whirlwind. And then Job learns. And Job is humbled. And Job gets the last lesson. And the last lesson that I want to give you really flows from the first two lessons. They all hang together. And that is this. Because suffering draws you inside of yourself, and, and, and you and I, in suffering, we, we don't know the half of what God is up to. We, we really don't. But at the same time, God rules the world in goodness. Then we learn this third and final lesson in God's speech, and it's this. Here is the takeaway. Your fundamental need in your suffering is God. That's it. Your fundamental need in your suffering is God. Now, let me explain that to you. Let me unpack that for you by, by asking you this. I think that it's reasonable to answer this question. Did God answer Job's question? Job wanted an explanation for his suffering. That's what he longed for. That's what he wanted. Did God answer him? Did he? What, what do you think? Did he answer him? Well, it's a bit of a trick question. 
I think the answer is yes and no. No, God did not answer Job in the sense of this. Let me tell you what happened, Job. I'm going to tell you what conversations took place in the heavenly realm with Satan before all of this broke down on you. Let me explain myself to you, Job. That's not how God responded to Job. But yes, God did answer Job because Job responds with silence and repentance. Job does not say, he does not say, I I still don't understand. Explain to me further. No, I think you're wrong. He doesn't say any of that. Job gets the point. His question was satisfied. So for Job, and often with us, as one pastor says, quote, God is not willing to give us the answers that we want, but he does provide us with answers. Did you hear that? God is not willing to give us the answers that we want, but he does provide us with answers. And here is the answer that you need in your suffering. It's the answer that I need in my suffering. We don't primarily need in our suffering relief from the pain, although that helps. You and I, we don't primarily need a fix for the problem. You and I primarily don't need a plan for avoiding suffering in the future. You and I primarily don't even need an explanation for why we are suffering. What you and I need, listen, what you and I need, we need a bigger, clearer, more more robust view of God. We need a renewed vision of the Almighty. And this is exactly what Job meant when he says in chapter 42, look at it with me, Chapter 42, verse 5. We didn't have time to read it all. Chapter 42, verse 5. He says, God speaks to him again, and Job says in verse 5, I have heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job did not have a literal vision with his physical eyes. Do you know what it was? It was when God was speaking to Job words that God revealed himself to Job in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, and in all of his splendor. God opened the eyes of Job's heart. You see, Job missed it. Job missed it. Yes, Job was a believer. It's how it pictures him in the first chapter. He was a believer. And so Job was a a churchgoer. He was a giver. He was a server. Job lived a life of integrity. He worked hard. He was a good steward of his money. He could check all of the religious boxes. He He could say he was doing all of the do's and none of the don'ts that we associate with Christianity. That's what was happening with Job. Yet Job missed something. He missed something. His suffering 
took him inside of himself and Job needed to look outside of himself and see God for who he really is. Job needed a fresh, beautiful, big vision of God. I love what the late R.C. Sproul says. He, he just puts it so well, as R.C. Sproul used to do so often of the time. He says, quote, Ultimately, the only answer God gave to Job was the revelation of himself. That was the answer that God gave Job. And he goes on to say, It was as if God said to Job, Job, I am your answer. Job was not asked to trust a plan or a person, or excuse me, he was not asked to trust a plan, but a person, a personal God who is sovereign, wise, and good. It was as if God said to Job, learn who I am. When you know me, you know enough to handle everything. It's so true. It's so true. We need to learn and know God. I mean, this was the Apostle Paul's great ambition that I may know him. And it needs to be our ambition. I'll put it like this if you take away nothing, I want you to remember this. In your suffering, you need to see. In your suffering, you need to see. You need to see. So if you're suffering right now, I want you to ask yourself, what am I seeing? Or rather, who am I seeing? What am I looking at? What is my heart gazing at right now? And, and let, listen, listen. It's not going to make it magically all makes sense when you see God. It, it doesn't to Job. He still had questions, but he saw enough, Job saw enough for his heart to be content. It's not like everything just magically went away. The suffering certainly didn't go away. It will eventually as we get to chapter 42. We haven't gotten there yet. But he saw enough for his heart to be content. But you know what? All of us, all of us suffer to one degree or another. But, but there is suffering that comes into our lives that, that is just unexpected. And that we don't want and that really alters our life. So, so what can you do? You can be prepared. You can be prepared how? By, by continually having a big and beautiful vision of God. How do you get that? You attend church. It's what you're doing this morning. But you attend over and over and over again. You attend church where a preacher heralds the glories of Christ. You read the Bible where you encounter an all-satisfying Savior. And you pray like the Dickens, like Moses did. Lord, show me your glory. 
That's what you pray. Lord, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to see your glory. And why is it so important that we see God's glory, that we see him as big and powerful and wise and just and good and all that he is? Why is that so important? It's so important because only when we see God for who he truly is, then can we trust him. Then we can trust him. You can't trust someone you don't know. You can't trust someone you doubt is good or kind or loving or wise or just. We trust people. We trust people. But, but, but people will always fail you. We're not always perfectly wise, just, good. We fail. People will disappoint you. But listen, God will never disappoint. All of the satisfaction, all of the meaning, all the value, all the purpose you long for can only be found in God. It can only be found in him. It's not in any other person. It's not in a career, in your investment account, in family, health, your body image, or anything else. Everything else is, to quote Jeremiah, but a broken cistern that can hold no life-giving, satisfying water. It is. But the more you see him, the more... You see him for who he truly is, the more you can be like him, John says. And the more you see him, the more you can trust him. This is why what you think about God, why what you think about God is so important in your suffering. How you cope with your pain. Is is tied intimately and directly to how you understand and view God. You see, in the end, Job, what did he do? He chose to trust God through his suffering. This is how Job started when the suffering came in chapter 1. But somewhere, and we don't totally know where, Because the book doesn't totally give us some complete insight into this. But somewhere Job got off course. He got off course. And that's what happens to us, brothers and sisters. We get off course. We lose sight of our Heavenly Father. We forget how good He is. We forget who He truly is. But we need to be like Job. Job came back. He came to his senses at the end. When God patiently waits... He patiently waits until Job's ready. And then God speaks out of the whirlwind. So how about, how about you? How about the suffering that you are going through? I have suffered in my life. And I'm thankful the Lord has not let me go. My suffering has so oftentimes turned me inward. And I have to cling to the fact that God is good. And I have to believe that despite all that I see and feel, and I have to turn my gaze back onto an all-powerful, all-amazing, all 
glorious and satisfying God because he is. He is. He is who he is. How he described himself in Job 38 through 41. That's who he is. Reflect on that passage. Reflect on his greatness and his power and his glory. And this is what Elizabeth Elliot did. Elizabeth Elliot, you know who she is. Most of you know. Elizabeth Elliot knew her fair share of suffering. She lost her first husband, Jim. You probably know that about her. Jim Elliot. And he was killed by the Aka people when he tried to get the gospel to them. He, along with his friends, they were brutally killed. And Elizabeth Elliot, she remained unmarried for 13 years. Went 13 years as a widow. And then she finally found the next love of her life, her second husband. And she was with him for four years and he died. And later in her life, and I'm just scratching the surface on her life, but later in her life, Elizabeth Elliot suffered the loss of her mind to this terrible disease that we call dementia. And with all the suffering in her life, she writes something that I read that is so beautiful and that is so moving and it's spot on with the book of Job. And this is what Elizabeth Elliot says. She says, God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find no rest, I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. That is the essence of what Job came to see. And that is the essence of what we need to come to see in our suffering. Amen?